News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as many of us head back to work this week, undoubtedly, things probably have changed in your workplace, right? New rules about even being there or maybe working from home have rapidly been put back into place because of the unbelievably fast spread of the Omicron variant. But it's also different this time around, too. With the other waves of the virus and with the issue of, you know, vaccine mandates, workplaces and managers have had to navigate changing rules and what they're allowed and what they are well, not allowed to do. So how does all of this work? Well, joining us now to talk about that is Michael Cleveland, a lawyer with the firm Miller Thompson. Michael, thank you for joining us this morning and Happy New Year. Good morning. Happy New Year. I'm sure you're looking forward to 2022 because is this a, the issue of workplaces and what managers are allowed to do and not allowed to do? Has that been a pretty hot topic for you in the past year? Oh, it definitely has, and uh, it will be keeping me busy throughout throughout the year for sure. <laughs> what are the big questions that people have about this? So it's you're totally right that a lot of employees and employers are asking the same question these days, and and the question is, you know, can employers implement uh, mandatory vaccination requirements? And when we talk about uh, what we mean by a mandatory vaccination policy, oftentimes employers are taking a few different tacks. So so in many cases, you'll see employers giving employees alternatives to vaccination. So things like undergoing rapid uh, regular COVID-19 testing um, or, you know, for example, if an employee can work remotely, having them do so and uh, with the option of voluntarily returning to the workplace, but having to show proof of vaccination to do so. So the really contentious policies are those uh, in uh, workplaces that don't provide those alternative options. So. Basically, you know, someone who has to attend the workplace to perform their work and the employer is saying, you know, there are disciplinary consequences for not getting vaccinated, like being placed on a leave of absence or having your employment terminated. Right. Okay. So is it different for every workplace then? Like, does every manager and employer have to take different things into consideration? It is, uh, it is always going to be fact specific. So there are a few broad distinctions you can make. There's the question of, uh, is your workplace unionized or non-unionized? And that, that will always uh, really determine what the scope in which the employer can act. And then there's the question of what is the type of work that you're doing as an employee? Is it, uh, you know, are you really uh, facing uh, the public? Are you working with vulnerable individuals? Uh, that kind of question about what the specific nature of the workplace is like will, it will influence what is reasonable in the workplace. And then there's Broader question, uh, especially as, as you mentioned in the opening, with this uh, really, really high spread recently uh, uh, of community transmission, that uh, changes the analysis a little bit for for many workplaces in terms of what is really necessary to protect the safety of the workplace. Right, and I guess depending on where your headquarters are too, right? Because lots of companies are right across the country, and yet it varies province by province. Like you're in Ontario, and I understand things are going to be changing this morning. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. So it's um, there are different isolation requirements in every province. Provinces have implemented their own um, policies about which workplaces are actually required to implement uh, mandatory vaccination policies. Uh, the federal government, for example, so if you work in a in a bank or a telecommunications uh, industry where you're regulated, your employment is regulated uh, by the federal government. 
they've announced that they're implementing uh, a broad vaccination requirement whereby all uh, federally regulated employers will be required to be implementing these policies. If you're in Ontario uh, and you work in a hospital, folks uh, there will be subject to, to mandatory vaccinations, which may provide alternatives. But again, it's every case uh, is going to be different. Uh, and that's what keeps things interesting these days. I'll bet. Michael, what is the obligation here for employees? Because like, even for me, I was off for a couple of weeks. Um, you know, there were a lot of emails to go through, but things had <laughs> changed in our workplace too. And so there were new rules that I had to learn. So what what is our obligation here? Absolutely. So generally, when you're looking at the types of policies that an employer is going to implement, um, if you're in a non-unionized setting, what you can expect that uh, your employer will uh, should recognize that they have a, a human rights obligation. So there are going to be you know, relatively rare cases, thankfully, where an employee genuinely can't get vaccinated. And if you're faced with a policy whereby you, know, you are required to be vaccinated, that, that policy should include human rights exemptions. Um, if you are otherwise being directed to get vaccinated, uh, you know that is a that's a policy that the employer has has chosen to implement. Um, and remember that in a non-unionized workplace, uh, barring these human rights considerations, so as long as a termination uh, or discipline, uh, particularly termination, isn't for uh, a protected ground like a disability or something like that, employers can essentially end employment for any reason in, in provincially regulated, uh, particularly in Ontario, there are different rules in every province, but be aware that uh, a lot of the case law that you may have, that is starting to be discussed is coming from a unionized workplace where there is an obligation for the policy to be reasonable. And that does not always extend to these uh, non-unionized workplace where the dispute will really be over right. whether the termination was for cause or for, for without cause. Michael, are these lessons, do you think, that um, we're going to keep with us? Like, are we setting precedent here in case law when it comes to employment law moving forward? It will definitely uh, start to develop into it's something that we referred to before. You know, in, in mid-2020, late 2020, we were still working off older case law from, from you know, 2010, 2015, uh, about mandatory vaccinations, uh, dealing with flu outbreaks in hospitals. And now, you know, that case law, it was really not applicable to this broader community spread where we're worried about transmission in other environments. So now we're really starting to see uh, labor arbitrators render some decisions on, on how to actually address these COVID vaccination policies in workplaces that are not healthcare related. So now we actually have a bit of guidance. Uh, we're starting to see that you know, when arbitrators are looking at these workplaces, they will think, okay, are they attending client sites? Are they uh, you know, are they really heightening the risk of exposure in the workplace or is there a lesser means through which the employer uh, could ensure uh, the safety right. of employees in the workplace? So I guess the lesson here then is I know because today is, you know, a holiday for a lot of people heading back to work this week. Pay attention to those work emails because maybe we don't always read, and I'm speaking for myself here, don't <laughs> always read every Absolutely. email that your manager <laughs> sends you. You're totally right. Okay, thank you very much for that. Thanks so much.
so much. That's Michael Cleveland, lawyer with the firm Miller Thompson, talking about employment law, essentially what is going on with the new rules and regulations about COVID-19. I mean, I definitely had to take some time and read some emails that maybe I would have passed over, you know, on the weekend just because of changing rules in the workplace because of the Omicron variant. If you're heading back to work this week, good idea for you to do that too. Of course, healthcare workers, teachers, all of that is in the news, but every workplace is being impacted by this. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. We had quite the cold snap over the last couple of weeks, didn't we? Now, normally you would think, oh, okay, this must be a great time for BC winemakers to take advantage of the temperatures and maybe, you know, get a good ice wine crop. But it's actually becoming less common. And this year, even fewer farmers did that. So why the change? What's been happening? Joining us now is Michael's Pro- Miles Prodan, I should say. Sorry, CEO of the President of the Wine Growers of British Columbia. Miles, thank you for joining us. Happy New Year. Uh, same to you. Happy New Year as well. Let's talk about ice wine. So what went on? Was this not a good couple of weeks for ice wine production? No, no, it was ideal for, for, for production. It's just that uh, less and less uh, growers are actually setting aside grapes for ice wine production. So, no, the temperatures were ideal. Uh, it has to be at least minus eight, and it has to be minus eight uh, for you picking them and actually crushing it. So you can't just pick them, set them aside, and get around to doing it again. It all has to be done contiguously, and that creates uh, huge uh, labor issues. You need the right people at the right time. It's just getting harder and harder to uh, to make the wine but mother nature uh, mother nature participated uh, big time this year okay so do you think what what's going to happen to the ice wine crop then can we expect a good year for that it'll be good but it's just going to be less of it i mean we can take a look at the numbers the thing about it that people need to understand about ice wine is it's not haphazard it's not as though oh i didn't get around to picking those grapes i think i'll make ice wine this year you have to register in advance you have to make the decision that I'm going to set aside that block of grapes to hopefully make ice wine. It doesn't always get to be that cold. Um, Generally, it does, but there have been years in the past where it hasn't. And so you have to register that. And this year, we only had five wineries um, register where there was uh, 12 last year. And, for example, 31 wineries registered in 2012. So we're just seeing less and less uh, wine growers setting grapes aside for ice wine. Okay, so... Has it been, like in recent years, I remember when ice wine even started becoming a thing, Miles, when it was something that Okanagan wine growers started taking advantage of. How often do we get a good year for ice wine? Well, just it, we, we always get a good year um, for ice wine in the end, but, but the trick with ice wine is that it has to be minus eight. And that's not just, again, that's the, that's the law. There are actually, there is actually regulations that stipulate it has to be that temperature. You have to call in and let uh, the BC Wine Authority, that's the governing body for uh, BC VQA wine, let them know that you're going to go and harvest and they will verify that it's minus eight. There's a process for sure and it has to be followed. But the longer it gets to being minus eight, and this year it, it, it was, it's, or it's been earlier, by the way, as well, but it's also been much later. And the later into the season it goes, the less the amount of juice that there is. The grapes are susceptible to uh, bears, to birds, to rot. Um, so you hope to have uh, uh, it be the right temperature early on, but you never really know. And again, in the past, there have been uh, rare, but there have been times uh, where there hasn't been an ice wine harvest at all because it just never did get to minus eight. Right. So this year sounds like it was ideal then. It was ideal. It was uh, early. We had some uh, before the Christmas break. 
And then uh, over Christmas uh, break, we would have had the rest of it. But again, for an example, um, last year there was 300 tons that were registered. People had set aside, but in the end, only 75 tons were actually harvested because of that uh, the time between when you would think you think would be ideal and when it comes in. Uh, 95 tons were registered this year, and we're yet to see what what actually came in in the end, but uh, I don't think it will be the 95 tons that people had hoped. It'll be somewhere along there, but it just shows that there's less and less grapes being set aside. And I think that's really a factor of a couple things. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the quality of our of our still wine, our red wine, our white wine, our sparkling wines. Um, wineries uh, are being very successful and being uh, recognized for the quality of that wine. So, they're wondering if it's worth taking the risk or not to set aside uh, to set aside those grapes. I think people should also understand it probably takes anywhere between six or seven times the amount of grapes to make a bottle of ice wine really? that it does regular wine. So that's where you get the expense of ice wine. It's very concentrated. And again, generally, you have to pick it when it's minus eight. And guess what? It's only really minus, gets hit minus eight in the middle of the night. So it's, it's a nighttime endeavor. And you have to find uh, people to come out and help you uh, process. Uh, it's all done by hand as well, so uh, can't can't run machines for it at all. So it's it's labor intensive. Okay, Miles, I am fascinated by this process because if you love ice wine, then it's almost like a catch twenty two this year, isn't it? Because you're going to get a great year. However, it's probably going to cost you more. It will, but I think I think what, the other challenge for us is there's many many fans of ice wine, and it's a great gift. And I dare say that many listeners probably have a bottle of ice wine sitting somewhere where they are just waiting for that special occasion. And uh, and uh, you need to use it because uh, while it's down this year, it is a great product and there is lots to be found. Um, but people just are, I think, a little tentative on, 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 on using it. And it goes with every meal. You don't need to have a full glass when you pour it for friends or yourself. About an ounce and a half is all that's really needed. And so uh, it, it needs to be appreciated and, and consumed. Right. And I think, again, people just tend to think of it as being so special they don't want to touch it. And that's just not, that's not what it's for. It's yeah. for those special occasions or any occasion. And by the way, once you open it, it can stay fresh in the fridge for weeks, unlike a, unlike a bottle of, uh, of still wine. I love that. So you're saying drink it, people. Don't I'm save it. I'm <laughs> drink it. Exactly. It goes, well with a, it's, it goes well with a dessert. Just make sure that the dessert isn't sweeter than the ice wine. And really, it goes well with uh, any kind of uh, like a fruit cobbler or some kind of uh, fruit-based uh, dessert, uh, or with some really with soft cheese uh, anytime. So it's there to be enjoyed. Make sure it says BCBQA on it, though. There's a lot of fake ice wines out there, and as I say, the really the quality and the uh, regulations in place. It's strictly regulated to make sure that it is frozen on the uh, vine. It hasn't mm-hmm. been stuck in a freezer. It hasn't been. There's all kinds of ways of cheating and making ice wine, but if it says BCBQA, you know it is 100% BC grape to begin with and that it's properly been produced to, 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 to produce this fabulous ice wine that we're famous for. How unique is ice wine here in British Columbia? It's special. There's not many places around the world. There are places where it gets to be, it freezes. Um, but I tell you, Canada specifically, Ontario does a great job because they pretty well get cold all the time, um, and we do as well. I say there have been rare occasions. I mean, I can think of two vintages where it hasn't been uh, below uh, eight uh, degrees. So uh, we've got a fabulous product. Uh, and again, the, the, you know, what you need is you need to have those sunny, warm days to make the to get the fruit and uh, to get the uh, essence of the, the fruit and making 
the, the quality wine, and then you need the freezing to make the ice wine. So those, that combination is very hard to find, and we're unique here in uh, B.C., to have those uh, warm days and cool, uh, cool warm summers and cool winters. Right. So then quality-wise, Miles, how would you predict this harvest for this year is going to be? Well, I can tell you the wine, the actual uh, crush for uh, the vintage this year has been phenomenal. Um, we had a couple of uh, you know incidences between the heat dome that didn't affect our, our didn't affect it as much as we thought it was going to, and smoke, which doesn't look like it affected as well. So that quality, the wine quality, has been really great. So if that translates over to the ice wine, which there's no reason why it would not, we're going to have another fabulous uh, vintage of uh, BC BQA ice wine this year. All right, sounds good, Miles. Thank you. Enjoy your BCBQA ice wine. Oh, I, and drink it, as, as you were saying, right? <laughs> yeah. Enjoy more. That's Miles Prodden, who's the CEO of the president of and CEO and president of the Wine Growers of British Columbia, talking about the ice wine harvest. I know people think of it as a special gift, right? And then you save it, save it, save it, and he's saying enjoy it this year. Exceptional conditions for ice wine making. Not as many wine growers actually doing it. He said so. If you want to find a bottle for this year, you might find the price has gone up too, but he said it will be exceptional for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, have you checked it yet? If you are a homeowner in BC, then the assessed value of your home has now been updated on the BC Assessment website as of January 1st. And for a lot of people out there, the new number may come as a bit of a shock because it is probably much higher than you had anticipated. To talk more about all of this and what's going on with it, joining us is Brendan Ogmanson, who's a chief economist for the BC Real Estate Association. Good morning, Brendan. Happy New Year. Good morning. Happy New Year to you. What did you think when you saw the, some of these assessments? Well, not, not much of a surprise since I, I see these numbers uh, all the time. So, you know, we were certainly expecting a large increase in the assessments. And of course, those reflect uh, back in July when those assessment kind of measurements were made. So uh, near the peak of of, of, uh, of demand at the time. So uh, not too much of a surprise that we're seeing prices kind of up 20% plus uh, across the board around the province. Yeah, well, so let's remind people of that. So how does BC assessment decide what your home is worth? Um, I think they essentially use... Uh, models and expertise of their of their assessors uh, at, at I think in the end of the date is sort of in July, so they do it every year uh, based on on July data. Uh, it's not a market price, so what you see in your assessment does not mean that's what you could you know, sell your home for. You know that really depends on market conditions, uh, and and in most cases, like like now when market conditions are exceedingly tight, uh, we would see prices going for for uh, well over assessment. Right. So I thought the rule of thumb was usually, you know, your house is probably worth 15 to 20 percent more than what your assessment is. Um, could be. It really depends on, on where the market is. Uh, there are certainly times, you think back to, to 2012, uh, probably is the most, most recent time, maybe 2018, 2019, where prices were probably going for a little under assessment in some cases. So it really does just depend on, on, uh, on market conditions at the time that you're selling. Right. Okay. So then for people need to remember is that this was a snapshot taken of your home in July of this year. What was July like for the market, Brendan? Uh, hot. I mean, we, we really saw the first half of 2021 uh, was still kind of in that, that recovery and surge of demand that we saw 
um, um, kind of any initial recovery from the pandemic. If you recall, way back in 2020, when when home sales fell to record lows as everything kind of shut down, then we saw a pretty startling recovery in the summer of 2020. That continued till really like May of 2021. A uh, really strong kind of, if, if you recall, you know, all the way back then, uh, month after month of, of record home sales. Uh, and uh, and falling uh, uh, supply of listings, which is what we're dealing with now. Uh, so you know, at you know, if we look at in the summer of, of 2021, that was a pretty strong point for the market. Uh, things have continued to be pretty strong. We're just you know, we're kind of out of that that period. Right. Okay. So this also impacts people's property taxes, right? Like, what is BC assessment for? Yeah, so it, it really goes into the calculation of your property taxes, but that's a much more involved kind of calculation where each municipality sets its budget, uh, and then and then you kind of are assessed, you know, based on uh, on the entire kind of market value of homes in your area. If that's going into too much, so um, you know, just because your home went up twenty percent doesn't mean your property taxes are going up twenty percent. Uh, the the you know, property taxes are sort of set based on how much money your municipality is going to spend in that year. And it's going kind to of allocated based on you know how much homes kind of comparably went up in in your in your municipality. Right. Okay, that's something to keep in mind. I know some cities like Vancouver they do a three year average too. So one hot year does not necessarily mean that your you know your your rates are going to go up. Brendan, looking ahead to twenty twenty two, like where's the market at right now? What do you see happening in the spring? Yeah, un- unfortunately, you know, for a market, especially like like Vancouver and others that have real affordability challenges, uh, we're seeing levels of, of listings in the market. So what's available to buy right now uh, at levels that, uh, lo- you know, at lows we've, we've never seen. So, you know, for Vancouver, going back 25 years, we've never had active listings this low. Uh, markets like Victoria are even worse. So to give, you know, you know an example of, of how bad things are in terms of supply, uh, in the lower mainland as a whole, there are about 8,000 listings uh, as of December. That's for a population of about 2.8 million people. In Victoria, there are only 600 listings in Greater Victoria for a, a, a population of about, about 400,000 people, I think. So um, we've never seen supply this low. Demand is still pretty strong. Uh, it's a pretty simple calculation from, from there uh, that we are going to continue to see a lot of upward pressure on prices because there's just there's just right. no supply in the market to to, uh, to buy. And why do you think that is? Like, are people just not willing to sell right now? It, it's kind of a two part thing. Uh, back in the at the start of the pandemic, we saw listings fall as people pulled uh, their their homes from the market, uh, and then as demand recovered, that really kind of you know with all this demand hitting a very undersupplied market, that meant the total number of listings kept falling, uh, and and that's kind of where we are now. And, and for markets like like the island or the Okanagan. Uh, that saw a lot of relocation demand. That meant, you know, someone was listing, say, in Vancouver, but buying a home in Kelowna. Uh, so their 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 demand is going to Kelowna, but there's no supply associated with that. They're listing in a different market. So, in a lot of those markets outside of Metro Vancouver, uh, we've seen listings fall to record lows simply because there was no so you know, so supply associated with the demand flowing into that market. Right. So people feel like, well, there's no real lateral movement, so I'm just not going to sell my house. Exactly. And that, that's the other part of it. Um, you know, it, with, with so little supply on the market, uh, even if you were to sell to take advantage of these really high prices, um, where are you going to go? If, if, especially in markets, again, like the interior or like the island where people are pretty settled. Uh, that's where, you know, the, where they, they settle either for retirement or for other reasons. Um, they're not really looking to move anyway. 
and, and, and even if they were, it's very difficult to find something that they, uh, that comparable to what they're already living in. Right. Okay. And you don't see that changing anytime soon because I mean, people have to have options, right? If they're going to make a change in their life, they need to have some options. Yeah, I and mean, we're really expecting the market to, to to be really strong, at least for the first half of this year. I think that interest rates rising in the second half of the year will start to to uh, to to bite into demand, uh, and that usually takes uh, you know about six to twelve months though to really have a, its full effect. So, I think until about the the second half of, of this year, we're still going to see very strong demand. I don't think we're going to see a lot of new supply on the market. I hope that starts to change around the second half of this year into 2023. Uh, hopefully, we can we can uh, uh, get markets normalized in a little bit. Not a hopefully is in there, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, Brendan, yeah. thank you for your time. Anytime, thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. 2022 will be significant for one very good reason, and that is we're having a municipal election here in BC, which means lots of changes at that very local level of government that impacts so many people directly. In your community, well, you may not yet know what's happening, but in New Westminster, we do know because the mayor of New Westminster, who has been the mayor for two terms, served three terms as a city councillor, and also plays a very significant role at the Metro Vancouver leadership level, has said he is not going to be running for re-election. So what went into this decision? Joining us now is Jonathan Cote, Mayor of New Westminster. Happy New Year. Thank you for being here. Yeah, Happy New Year, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. So what went into this decision? Yeah, well, you know, my, my wife and I have been been struggling with this decision over 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 the last uh, last year. I've I've really enjoyed the opportunity I've had over the past sixteen years to to be involved in, in local government and see the changes we have here in, in in the city of New Westminster and and the region. But you know, I think for us uh, personally, it just seemed like the the right time for us to, to take the next next move. And we, you know, I also didn't want to be a lifer as well too. I, I need to be able to make uh, room and space for for new leaders to to emerge in in the region as well too. So you know, I think for those reasons, it just felt like the, the right time for us. And you have a lot of leadership at the Metro Vancouver level, though, and you kind of transitioned into that after the last election. Do you feel there's enough experience to to carry on if you're not going to be there? Yeah, well, you know, it was definitely a, a unique opportunity after the last election because there were so many brand new, brand new mayors across the region, and you know, it's it's been an honor to to serve that uh, that that uh, leadership role in the region as, as chair of the mayor's council and at, at Metro Vancouver as, as well too. But you know, I think as a lot of the brand new mayors, they're they're not rookie mayors anymore. They have a, a good solid term under their belt, and I I would expect a lot of them would likely be be returning as as well too. So I'm confident that there you know there's definitely going to be opportunity on the regional level for, for, for new leadership opportunities. How did you find politics? How, like, what, what, what was it that you liked about it? Yeah, well, you know what? Uh, I, I've, I really enjoyed the opportunity I've had over the past 16 years, uh, you know, especially at the local level where, you know, you're working on changes that, you know, affect a local community, a local neighborhood, and, uh, and, and, and just to be able to kind of engage with community members, uh, with city staff, and, and your colleagues on council, really with, you know, a, a strong goal to build a better community and, and actually be able to see those changes locally in your, in your community is, has been really rewarding. And I've, I've really been thankful. I've had the opportunity to, to be able to play this role. So why did you get into politics when you first ran as a counselor way back when? And do you feel like, what do you, what do you feel most proud of? Yeah, well, you know, I think uh, I, I still remember when I, I first got elected to city council and I was, uh, you know, definitely in, in my late 20s, a, a, l- a little green uh, 
um, there. And I, I recall one of my first first meetings, I, I brought a, a seven-page green action plan to, to council tables. And I didn't realize it at the time, but that's actually not what, what councillors do is to bring, you know, small reports like that to, uh, to, to council. But that plan really kind of launched the work we've, uh, we've done and, and put climate, uh, climate action on, on the city's, city's radar. And it's, it's been really inspiring to kind of see how, how that work has evolved over, over the years and, and how the community and, and councils uh, have, have engaged and has led to our, our seven bold steps on, on, on climate change. In my opinion, I think it's you know it's the it's the issue of our, our ages and, and one that all levels of government need to uh, need to be focusing on. And I've been really proud of the work we've done in, locally here in New Westminster. Oh well, New Westminster's had a lot of challenges, hasn't it, over the past ten years? It, it has seen incredible growth. Yep, you know we've been one of the fastest growing communities in, in, in Metro Vancouver, but you know I think we've we've grown as uh, as our local plans and, and regional plans have suggested. Uh, you know I think we're we're very fortunate to be a community that has five SkyTrain stations, and you know I think we recognize the importance of of having people be able to live near transit, live near shops uh, like downtown New Westminster, and and really kind of create those vibrancies. So I think. For me, those, those have no doubt caused some challenges, but I think they've brought some great opportunities and, and life to the city as well. So there must be some things though, that you had on your list that you thought, oh, I always wanted to get to that and I never got to it. Like, what was that? Yeah, well, you know, I think probably the, the one thing that uh, uh, I, I'm really interested that I'm, I'm hoping a, a future council will be able to complete is is actually being able to link our, our riverfront uh, greenway between Sapperton and, and downtown New Westminster. It's, uh, it's a challenging project that we've been contemplating for, for years, and uh, but I'm to me, I think it'll really knit this this whole city together if uh, if we'd have that greenway across the city. So, you know, I think if I had if I had one wish for a future council, I think that would be one area that I would love to see uh, one project I'd love to see uh, move move forward. But ultimately, it will be up to future councils to decide uh, the priorities for for the city. It's frustrating, though, isn't it? Because I'm sure there are things that you thought, oh, why don't why don't politicians do you know X Y Z, and then you get into power and you find out why they can't do X Y Z. Yeah, you know what? It's uh, as I want to remember being before getting involved and, and being really passionate about advocacy. Um, but when you do when you do get elected, you realize just how difficult and challenging and uh, it, it is to to, uh, to to kind of work through things and and also recognize that all the different perspectives uh, you know around the community vary greatly. Uh, you know, I often joke that every decision that I, I've made over the past sixteen years, uh, probably half the community's been happy with it, and the other half hasn't. And you know, obviously, that's that's challenging in, in these kind of roles. What would you like people to understand about the job? Because I know these days people, well, you know, they're very critical about politicians, people in the public eye, and I'm sure that's difficult. But what would you like people to know about it? Yeah, well, you know, I, I'd always want to encourage people to to, to get involved in, uh, in, in in local government. Uh, you know, I think it's it's the level of government that that has such incredible impacts on on communities, but I think sometimes often gets overshadowed by provincial and, and federal levels of government. And you know, anyone who's community minded and, and and really cares about about their city and their neighborhoods that they live in and wants to build better cities. Uh, to me, I'd, I'd always say, you know what, this is a great opportunity and you'll, you'll find it definitely really rewarding work. Okay, but well, what are you going to do now? Well, what am I going to do? Well, you know, I think I, I've really enjoyed the opportunity I've had, but, uh, you know, I think it's now time for me to kind of step away from, from politics. But, uh, you know, I think as, as many people know, I've, you know, the reason I got involved in politics in the first place was kind of a love and passion for, for cities. My education background is in urban planning. So I don't quite know what that next next role is going to be. But, uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if it, if it somehow involved building better cities. Okay, so what kind of advice then could you give 
the next person who perhaps wants to be mayor or would be mayor? Yeah, you know what, I, I, I'd say, you know, follow, follow your heart uh, and always always think back as to why you wanted to run in, in the first place. Uh, because, you know, I think sometimes when you when you get mirrored in the day-to-day challenges of, of the roles and, and the stresses, uh, uh, you can sometimes lose sight of what, why did I get involved in this in the first, first place there? And so, you know, I think, number one, encourage people to kind of follow their hearts and, and their passions in, in this world. But, but also, number two, never forget why you wanted to get involved in the first place. That sounds nice. Now, you did a lot of work, as I mentioned, at the Metro Vancouver level and a leadership position there. No, I don't think a lot of people in Metro Vancouver understand the role that that level of government plays, do they? No doubt. Uh, you know, I think uh, you know. I think most people kind of get the the local city, but whether it's Metro Vancouver or the work at, at, at TransLink, which are, are huge regional organizations that that you know uh, take care of our, our public transit system, our, our sewer system, our, our regional garbage, uh, our water. You know, those are these are key elements that that really make cities work. And and frankly, the Federation of Municipalities of Metro Vancouver to be able to collaborate that we have on those items I actually think only enhances and improves the, the quality of services that we, we have in, in the region. But, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's difficult work and it's, it's complicated getting, uh, you know, all of the, all the cities across Metro Vancouver to, to work together. But it's, it's also been inspiring to see how different communities with different priorities and, uh, uh, and different perspectives generally have come really come together really well on the regional level. And I've enjoyed the opportunity I've had uh, in, in, in my roles uh, at both uh, the Translake Mayor's Council, but also at the Metro Vancouver Board. Well, you still have most of 2022 to go, so I'm sure we'll be talking to you in the future. But best of luck. Thank you for joining us. Thanks very much, Stevie. Appreciate it. That's Jonathan Cote, Mayor of New Westminster. Uh, he's been the mayor for two terms now. He was a city councillor for three terms before that. So he's been around in local politics in Metro Vancouver and has announced that he will not be running for re-election this fall when municipal elections are held. That's a big loss on the Metro Vancouver level, certainly when it comes to dealing with issues like transit, transportation, all of those things uh, for all of us in Metro Vancouver. question is, Who's next? Who is going to step up into that Metro Vancouver leadership vacuum? Could it be mayors of Surrey, Vancouver? Who will the next mayors of Surrey, Vancouver, and other communities be? Oh, there's going to be a lot to talk about in 2022. This is Mornings with Simi. Happy New Year, everybody. It is, of course, Monday. It's January the 3rd. And we are talking New Year's resolutions because, come on, you can admit it, you might have made one. Maybe you decided to do a dry January or a dry couple of weeks or you thought, I'm going to exercise more. For some reason, starting a new year makes us think about the things that we can change or perhaps improve in our life. And then maybe they don't last very long, right? What happens? How can we change that? Well, joining us is Sandra McDermott. Sandra is a certified life coach. She's going to help us out with this this morning. Good morning, Sandra. Good morning, Cindy. Nice to chat. Well, thanks for being here. Tell me, do you make New Year's resolutions? Um, I don't anymore, um, but that's mostly because I make uh, various habit changes or goals. I set them throughout the year, so I don't tend to do it right at the new year anymore. Why do you think we tend to do that, though, at this time of year? Is there something about, I don't know, January 1st that makes us think about it? I think there's two times. I think January and September, because it's going back to school, we tend to have this fresh start appeal. Um, and particularly, obviously, a lot of excesses happen over the holidays. And so it feels easy to begin with. It feels exciting to think about making a change at that time. And that's, I think, part of the problem is we get really excited and it feels like it's going to be something we can do. 
And of course, as you mentioned, it's not something that tends to last very long because we don't come at it with a plan. (laughs) Also, it's hard work. Perhaps we underestimate the fact that it's hard work. Yeah, it is hard work. And I think we forget that we're, we're attached to a brain that wants us to all, always is always looking for instant gratification and doesn't really want to expend energy that it doesn't have to. So we have to be ready to override those systems on a regular basis in order to achieve the things we want. Okay, so what kind of systems do you think we need to put in place? Like, what should we tell ourselves? Well, I think one of the things you can do is once you decide, and, and I, you did mention one resolution, I think that's really important, is to just choose one at a time. And then the first thing to do is to just really connect with exactly why you want it and have lots of reasons why. You know, you mentioned like, wanting to exercise. and You'll have lots of reasons. You might want to look better. You want to fit into your clothes. But you also may be doing it for health reasons. You may be doing it because you want to play with your kids or grandkids or whatever. So you have lots of reasons. And I ask my clients to list about 20 reasons why. So they have all kinds of different motivating um, kind of guides to help them every time they, they feel like they might slip up. Is that the thing that we have to remind ourselves? And also, maybe we need to be a little bit more realistic, Sandra. Like, are we, do we tend to make too many grand proclamations with our New Year's resolutions? I don't know if it's the grand po- proclamation so much as it is nonspecific. So we were like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose 50 pounds, which does sound really grand. And I'm not saying that that's not possible, but we're not necessarily specific about it. Like, we're not going to lose 50 pounds in January. It may take two years. And so if we get a bit more clear about when that and how that's going to happen, that also helps us make the resolution more realistic. Okay. And so let's, can you walk us through then what's a good way to approach this? Well, I think, so these are the ways to do it. One, choose one resolution. Two, make a list of reasons why you want it. And then three, when you're making it, be really as specific as you can with dates and and, um, numbers, if that's the case. And um, plan to start out small and also prepare that you're not going to do it all the time. You will have setbacks, but all a setback is if you don't do it, it doesn't mean you're not going to do it forever. It just means that was a great chance to learn of a time that you, you know, you fell through, you ate that chocolate, you drank that drink, whatever it is, use it as a learning opportunity and as a way to get back on the horse the next day. Is it valuable? Even like, I think we tend to beat ourselves up, right? If we tend to fall off that wagon or we're say we're going to exercise and then we don't do it the way we think we're going to. And then, and then we kind of give up on it. Yeah, exactly. And so that's what I mean about using it as a learning opportunity. I love to say to people, instead of seeing it as like, be really kind to yourself along the way. And you're, when you, when you mess up and quotations, uh, instead of seeing it as a mess up, see it as a learning opportunity. Like, Oh, I didn't know that about myself, or I'm going to bring awareness about this, about myself to the situation. I noticed that this is a time when I have a weakness. Oh, good to know. How can I plan better right. for it next time? So Sandra, with your clients then, is, are you busier by the way at this time of year? No, not necessarily. No, it's interesting. You, um, it, 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 you're busy all times of year, and I tend to work with people who are working on lots of different projects for their life. So it isn't necessarily when when they come out. Yeah, I was curious. So, what makes people turn to a life coach? Then is are there some like a top three number of reasons that people do this, or are there just so many? I think there's lots of reasons. Um, I think a lot of people, if they get to a place where they realize that they want to make the change, they They want their life to feel better than it does. They have an idea in mind. They want to write a book. They want to lose weight. They whatever. And they tried something or tried many things and it hasn't worked. And they finally got to a place where they're ready to invest the time and energy 
to do it and actually have someone, you know, encouraging them along the way. Because that's really all, all I do as a life coach, right, is I'm, I'm your partner and your, your motivator and your supporter all the way through. So you help have, having somebody make sure that you actually achieve what you want to achieve and doesn't let you off the hook. <laughs> well, that's, that's the key, right? Not letting yourself off the hook. Listen, Sandra, thank you so much for your time this morning. Any t- anytime. Happy to help.